Our topic today is out of Ezekiel chapter 37, two sticks becoming one. We've already done a sermon on the first part of Ezekiel 37, which is, really has no impact directly on, on, on the second part, and that's posted on shalomadventure.com if you want to uh, watch the first part. But since now for this second sermon out of Ezekiel 37, again, not a second part, but just a second sermon out of the same chapter, starting in verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it, for Judah and the children of Israel, his companions, take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Okay, so everyone kind of understand the analogy there, right? So talking to Ezekiel, he calls him son of man often, take two sticks, on one stick, write Judah, on the other stick, write Joseph, Ephraim. Verse 17, then join them to one another for yourself into one stick and they will become one in your hand. So take the two sticks, put them together, and they will miraculously become one in your hand. Verse 18, and when the children of your people speak to you saying, will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, right, so they see this going on, what are you doing here? What's this kind of magic trick? What is this all about? Say, thus says the Lord God, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and join them with the stick of Judah and make them one, echad, stick, and they will be one, echad, in my hand. Right? Okay, so you get the, the analogy, right? So exactly what he said to do, tell them this is what you did, right? So you take the two sticks, hold them together, they become one, and this is God saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take uh, the children of Israel, Joseph Ephraim, and join them with children of Israel through Judah, and make them one, right? Okay, pretty plain, pretty plain, okay. And now the word echad, this is kind of, this doesn't have to do with our topic tonight, but just a little aside, a uh, little parenthetical thought here with this word echad in this place here. Using the word one, the Bible translators, or the Bible writers, Ezekiel used the word echad. Well, and that means one, it means one. Uh, but it can also be understood as one in a plural sense. And here we see that. Take these two sticks, join them together, and these two will be one. Right, so how can two be one? Well, it's the same word that's used in Genesis when God says he created Adam and he created Eve, and the two shall be one flesh. Right now, in that case, okay, here, if he miraculously made these two sticks into one stick, well, then it's you know, it's, it's, it's now one stick. But in Adam and Eve, they still were Adam and Eve, right? Even after they became one joined together, they still were two individual people. But the Bible describes them as one, the oneness of God. And we use this word, echad, quoting from the scriptures, when we say the Shema, which we did just a few minutes ago. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the place that's used there is this one that can be used plurally. And Eloheinu, our God, Eloheinu is in the plural sense. And so God there in this plurality, this plural oneness. Now in the Bible, when it wants to use a singular one to specify this, the, the uniqueness of one and only, for example, when God told Abraham to take Isaac, your son, your only son, 
it uses the word yachid, a little different word, which indicating there your only, your singular son, take him and offer him on Mount Moriah. And, uh, and Maimonides, when commenting on, on the Shema, he actually changed the biblical word echad and used the yachid word, the, the plural one that's also singular, but also used plural, and changed it to, to make that singular, singular, singular only God. But the Bible uses this echad word, which again is a singular one, but can also be used, like here, in this plural sense. So two sticks becoming one. God is one. God's this beautiful oneness, this unique oneness. And that's what he's saying to Ephraim and, and Judah, and he's going to make them one. Now, there'd still be two different nations, two different tribes, or 12 different tribes, not going to take away their tribal ancestry, but that they're going to be one. Not that there's only going to be one individual, but they're going to be one in this unique oneness. Kind of like we have the United States, one nation, but 50 states. United together, united states. Plural states, but united as one nation. And that's the principle, and that's the, the, the application that God's using here. And again, used through the scriptures, and a very great description of God in the Shema, in that unique way. So now back to our topic here in chapter 37. Let's go on to verse 20. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. So the sticks, two, plural, sticks will be in your hand will be before their eyes. Verse 21, thus says the Lord God, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land of Israel and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two nations again. Pretty clear, pretty plain words. I mean, Ezekiel sometimes, you know, can get very, you know, prophetic and, you know, some very fanciful words there. But this chapter, so far, everything is very simple and clear and plain in its wording. Okay, so the illustration, you know, is kind of unique. But the interpretation he gives, that God tells him to give to the people, it's pretty plain. These two nations, going to bring them together, make them one nation in the land of Israel, right? It says, among the nations and bring them into their own land. Verse 22, I will make them one nation in the land of Israel. In the land of Israel. Right? So he's giving the specific place where this miracle is going to take place, where this unique unity is going to take place, where these two nations are going to come together as one. Now to fully understand this, we need to go back and understand how they got divided in the first place. So let's go back a little historically. In the time of, uh, we had Saul, one nation under King Saul, and David came along, one nation under David, Solomon follows David, one nation under Solomon. After Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam becomes king, and this other guy, Jeroboam, comes and basically causes a civil war, and a split takes place, and the one nation divides into two nations, north and south. And to the south, we have the tribe of Judah under Rehoboam, Solomon's son, under David's, Solomon's son, David's son, under Judah, and Benjamin is part of that, and the Levites are part of that. The other ten tribes, 
were in the north and they became known as Israel. So you have Judah to the south, Israel to the north. And it remains that way for about 300 years of this separation between the two nations. At times they fought against each other. There are a few times they united together against a common enemy. But I don't remember any part in the scriptures and it goes through the, the stories of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles and First Kings and Second Kings and it gives the history of the nations being separate and the history of the two nations living out their lives. I don't remember anywhere in those cases where there's any real attempt at bringing it together to make one nation out of it with one king. They seem to kind of be happy with the two nations that way and, uh, and kept on that way until the Assyrians come and they attack the north and they attack Israel, the ten nations in the north, and they take them captive, take basically all of them captive and disperse them throughout Assyria. Then later on, a few years later, I forget exactly how many years, 50, 100 years or something like that later, uh, Babylon comes, takes over Assyria and takes over Judah, attacks Judah, conquers Judah as well as many other nations and takes them captive and basically empties out the land and brings them to Babylon and has them captured there. And Judah and Israel, the original land of Israel, basically vacant of the Jews, are all taken, for the most part, out and brought to what was then Babylon, which was encompassed many nations that Babylon uh, overtook. Okay? So we're all kind of there, on page there. Kind of maybe remember some of that history we've been covering over the last several months. So that's where, and then we come to the time of Ezekiel. That's when Ezekiel comes along. He's in Babylon because he was taken captive with the others into Babylon. And there he is, and he's prophesying for 42 chapters uh, to the children of Israel, as it describes in, in, in those chapters. So that's where this prophecy takes place. These two nations have been separate all these times, and now he's prophesying that they're going to come back to the land as he and Jeremiah had been prophesying over and over again, and here that those two nations are no longer going to be two nations, but that when they come back to the land, they are going to be one nation. That's an amazing prophecy in itself. That's a pretty broad prophecy. That's a pretty big prophecy. That's a bold prophecy for him to make. For, for again, the 300 years, they've been separated. They didn't get along. They didn't seem to want to come together as two nations and now he's prophesying that it's going to happen. So that in itself would be a big deal. And that they'd be able to leave Babylon and come back. That also is a big, bold prophecy. But that's what he's saying. Now, there's a lot of groups that have taken this chapter and this kind of idea, and how, or what happened to the ten tribes, the northern tribes, the Israel tribes, what happened to them? And so you have groups like the Latter-day Saints, their leader, Joseph Smith, uh, said he was a direct lineage of Judah uh, from the line of King David. You have the Worldwide Church of God, who, who believed that they were also uh, the Ten Lost Tribes and, and uh, part of British Israelism is kind of like that too, that uh, the Jews, the Ten Lost Tribes went up to, to uh, Europe and different parts of uh, Europe, England, and other places. You have the extremist black Hebrews. And uh, there are black Hebrews that are not extreme and, and are okay guys. Uh, but, uh, but then there are some groups within the black Hebrew movement that are pretty extreme, very extreme. Uh, and they claim that they are the direct 
descendants, that they are the real Jews, and that all the others are fake Jews. See, all the others are not real Jews at all. They don't just claim to be the, the ten lost tribes. They, believe, they teach that the whole gamut. They're, they're all twelve, and that every other is an imposter. And so they list uh, twelve different uh, nations out of Africa. I think they include Jamaica or some others. And, and that these are the, the twelve tribes. And everything else is an imposter. And not only just an imposter, but it's their duty to get rid of all the rest <laughs> so that they themselves will be the ones that are there. And, I, and I've met uh, at times. Um, I was in New York City working... Uh, out in the streets doing health screenings at a, at a van and um, and on that street there was there was a group that were there and the, uh, the black Hebrew extremists and this is what they were teaching passing out pamphlets and stuff um, and and one guy came onto the van to get his blood pressure taken and, and he was in our waiting room area there and and I was discussing with him and uh, talking with him and out of the blue he asked what I was, what was my background, what was my heritage, something like that, I forget how he asked the question, and I said, I was Jewish. And the guy was sitting there, and he literally fell over laughing. He's laughing, laughing so much, he just rolled over, and, uh, and then when he finally got his composure back and got up, he tried to convince me that I wasn't a Jew, that he was the real Jew. And fortunately, in that waiting area at the same time, there was another individual who also happened to be uh, black, African-American, whatever he was there up in Harlem area. And, and the two of them started going at it. So I got kind of out of the way. <laughs> I just got sat back. And, and the two of them started going at it. Uh, this other guy was obviously some kind of Christian, and, and, and he wasn't going along with his other, the black uh, Hebrew guy. And so they were going at it. And they got it so intense. I eventually asked them, please, can you guys take your argument outside the van here and go out? So they left, and they argued for a while, and, and then parted their ways. Well, then after a while, another guy came on to, to the van to get his blood pressure taken, and he told me, he said, I used to be like you guys. I used to be a believer in God as well. I read the Bible like you guys do. And, uh, and, and I said, well, what, what now? And he said, well, now I'm with them. And he pointed to the group that had their little table out in the street. And so I said to him, so you're telling me you'd rather kill me than love me. And he just got like, kind of shocked, and he... he looked over me, looked over at that table, and, and he just kind of was just shaking, and then he just got up, and he walked off the van, and, and he looked back over at that table, and then he walked the other way. So I don't know whatever happened to him. Hopefully he woke up <laughs> to that whole thing. I don't know, maybe God wake him up somehow. But yeah, so you got these extremist groups. You got French Israelism, but all of these, and there's other groups as well, uh, some type of so-called Messianic groups that, that will claim this as well, that they have this bloodline somehow. But all of these groups in the top here claim bloodline right that uh, somehow they became inheritors um, of it. Uh, some will have even American Indians, that the American Indian tribe, you know, tribes became somehow Israel made it over here uh, in the dispersion. So there's different groups from these different type of theories. But as we read in the text, it's pretty plain, Ephraim, and Judah will become one in the land of Israel. And it didn't say in Europe, it didn't say in Britain, it didn't say in France, it didn't say in Waco, Texas, or it didn't say in the United States somewhere, it didn't say in upstate New York or somewhere. Right? It says, in the land of Israel, the two would come back and the two would become one. So all of these groups, they claim somehow kind of Jewish wannabes. They want to be Jewish, feel that there's something special about being chosen, 
And like Tevye and Fiddle on the Roof says, God, why don't you choose someone else sometime? <laughs> you know, it's not so great to be chosen by God uh, for the mission that he's called us, called us to be. And so all these groups want to claim some type of Jewish heritage, some type of Jewish right, some type of Jewish blood somewhere in their background. Of course, when Hitler, except when Hitler's around. Then they all flee, right? Then, oh, no, not me, right? Uh, but, uh, but when it's peace and quiet, they all want to come some kind of connection to God, some kind of connection to David, some kind of connection to Abraham. And, uh, and it's really not necessary. Because we're not saved by our DNA blood. We're saved only by the blood of the Messiah, the son of David, Yeshua the Messiah. That's the only way that we make it to heaven. There are plenty of bloodline children of Abraham, children of David, who will not be in heaven. I'd be very surprised if Absalom's going to be in heaven, David, one of David's sons. Probably Achan, who is one of the tribes that came, one of the people who came over through the Jordan River into Israel with, uh, with Joshua, first ones coming into the land of Canaan. I would be very surprised if he'd be in heaven, yet he was a bloodline child of Abraham, descendant of Abraham. That didn't, being a bloodline descendant of Abraham doesn't help him at all if he stole and lied and cheated and denied God. And then at the same time, you have Rahab, who's not a bloodline, coming in and joining in and becoming lineage of David. And so there's those who try and find something in, in order, and it's not wrong to know our heritage, not know, wrong to know our DNA background, something like that. I mean, there's people searching their grandmother's attics to find if there's a menorah up there or something like that. And again, that's fine and, you know, it's good. Not wrong to, to know some of this. You might want to know some of the history, and that's okay. But don't make it salvific. Don't make it important for your salvation. Because that's not what it's about. People tell me, you know, the grandmother liked bagels or something like that. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, we don't need to, that doesn't, as far as salvation goes, that's not what's important. Where our faith is, that's what is important. That's the key. Then, so we have that on the other side of the spectrum, we have supersessionism, also known as replacement theology, which doesn't go with the need for it to be a direct bloodline to prove any type of importance, but just merely that God rejected the Jews, and so notice the spiritual aspect, God rejected the Jews, and so he had to find someone to lay his promises on, so he didn't look like a jerk, and hey, he found me, and so I get the promises, and so he transferred them over to me, so he can still fulfill his promises, even though he couldn't do it in the ones he originally told to. And so that's kind of replacement theology that he replaced the Jews and replaced Judah, replaced Ephraim with me, with, with whatever, us, the Christian church, various different Christian churches. And, um, and so you had the Crusades as a result of that because then there needed to be, get rid of the original Jews because we're now it, right? And so the whole part of the Christian Crusades through the Dark Ages was, was a part of that kind of idea to supersede, to replace them with us. And again, it's all still this uh, trying to, uh, claim the promises of God, trying through some bloodline or through some other means um, of attaching it to self. But that's not what this chapter is saying. This chapter is pretty plain. So let's go back to the chapter. In uh, chapter, well, in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 3, 
which uh, this takes place after the split, after Solomon, after Rehoboam, after that split took place, yet before Ezekiel, right? So before Babylon comes, before Assyria comes in, and let's see what the Bible says happened to the ten tribes in the north. Let's go to 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 3. In Jerusalem dwelt the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin, Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, Judah and Benjamin were part of Judah, where Jerusalem was. But here it also mentions that there were some from Ephraim and Manasseh, and Ephraim and Manasseh were from the north. And yet dwelling in Jerusalem in 1 Chronicles 9, again after the split, they came and some of them lived in Jerusalem as well. Some chose, and then we see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 9, all Judah and Benjamin, with those of the tribe of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, who settled with them, with Judah and Benjamin, for great numbers came from Israel, the north, when they saw that the Lord his God was with him, the king Asa of Judah in the south. So there were people in the north, great multitude, great numbers of people in the north, northern Israel, who at various times decided, I'd rather be on the side that's worshiping God, that has the temple, that has Jerusalem, that's not going to the golden calves, and they decided to come and live in Judah. So then no doubt when Babylon does come and take them captive, you had people from Simeon, Ephraim, and Manasseh, and probably other tribes as well, who ended up being captive by Babylon uh, as well. We also have the account of when Hezekiah has a Passover, he sends emissaries all through the north in Israel to invite them to come down for the Passover, and it says that people did come down. Whether they stayed or not, we don't know. It was a great sacrifice for these to come down and stay, because their land was by inheritance. And after, even if you rented it out or leased it out or sold it, it could come back to you on the year of Jubilee or back to your family. And so if they left that, they left Ephraim, left Manasseh, left wherever they were in the tribes in the north, and came down the south, they wouldn't be able to own any land. Because all that was divvied up among the children of Judah, Benjamin, and, uh, and so. But they came down anyway at great sacrifice so that they can worship God. They saw that God was with them. And that's where they wanted to be. So we see them there mixed together. And so then we have, then again, Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesying that we're going to come back to the land. And we did come back to the land after Ezra dies. And sometime after that, Babylon is taken over by the Medo-Persians. And King Cyrus gives a decree that we can go back to the land. And when we go back to the land, and then sometime after that, the Greeks come and we enter into the time when the Maccabees, where we get our Hanukkah story from, the Maccabees are ruling over, and here's a map indicating the extent that the Maccabees were, had control over, and it's basically ancient Israel. A little here and there, some changes, but basically the same area. And we only see it as one nation. Not as two, not Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They were all ruled over by the Maccabean family after one after one succession as one nation, exactly what Ezekiel prophesied. And that's a fulfillment of the prophecy. That's a direct fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel. That the two nations that have been for 300 years, two different nations, Israel in the north, also known as Ephraim, Judah in the south, 
will become one and ruled over by one king. And certainly, uh, shortly as he said so, Cyrus said we can go back. We went back with Nehemiah and Ezra and rebuilt the temple and began worship services again. And the people came back and they were ruled over by one king after another in succession, just as the prophecy said. And that's a direct fulfillment of the prophecy. We have that historically. Prophetically and historically it came and was fulfilled. And we see that in, in the accounts of the Gospels as well. Here's the territory reigned over during the time of Yeshua and during the time of the Gospels. Very similar to what it was during the Maccabees. And those are places where all the synagogues were scattered all throughout that area and the ministry of Yeshua was throughout that area. From Galilee in the north and what was Israel in the north and Jerusalem and down in the south. All ruled over by one, as one group, one people group, no longer as two. And it says so in the Gospels, some accounts. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 21. When eight days, or after the eight days, they came to Jerusalem to circumcise him, and he was called Yeshua, and there was a man named Simeon. Well, what tribe do you think Simeon was from? The tribe of Simeon, probably, right? And Anna, a prophetess of the tribe of Asher. Asher was one of the ten tribes in the north. And so, obviously, from all the way back to Ezra's time, they kept track of this tribe of Asher, at least her family did, and knew that she was from the tribe of Asher. So some people from the tribe of Asher, and Simeon, and Manasseh, and Ephraim, and no doubt the others, came back as well. And in the book of Matthew and Mark, it refers to the disciple Matthew as Levi, the Levite. And so he was uh, of the tribe of Levite. So we have that. And then in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, Paul referring to himself, I am an Israelite myself of the tribe of Benjamin. So in the gospel accounts, in the book of Acts, we have people who knew what tribe they were from and that they were all mingled together. Asher and Ephraim and Manasseh and Judah and Benjamin, right? Judah, we have two disciples named Judas, probably from the tribe of Judah. Another reference as well. And then we don't have all the, we have most of them, most of the 12 tribes listed in these accounts. And I would imagine that the other ones as well, just not mentioned in the scriptures, came back as well because that's what the prophecy said that the two would become one. And we see this oneness here, that they became one and was all mingling together. Right? We don't have the 10 tribes here. We don't have, well, Yeshua won't come and be prophesied over a prophetess, uh, Anna, because she's of Asher, or the tribe of Asher. No, they're one. They're, they're mingling together. They're worshiping together in the same temple, in the same place, just as the prophecy said. Not lost somewhere, not over in, in, in Britain or France or, or Dutch or England or some or United States somewhere, not lost around somewhere, not in Africa. They came back to the land of Israel. Pretty clear, pretty plain. We don't need to prove our salvation by, as Paul says, endless genealogies. In the same chapter, chapter 11, verse 1, where, where he says this, I am of the tribe of Benjamin, he says, has God rejected his people? God forbid. And that's where he goes. I myself am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. God hasn't forsaken us. 
God hasn't cut us off. God hasn't replaced us. And God's, and thousands of Jewish people accepted him. 3,000 in a day on Shavuos after the last Passover. 5,000 immersed, plus women and children. And every day God was adding, including among the Levites. Is there any, throughout the book of Acts, is there any of the Greek cities where 3,000 Gentiles are immersed in a day? No. And there were no doubt were many more people living in Athens and some of these other cities in Rome. And so 3,000 in Jerusalem was a very big percentage, and 5,000 these other, very big percentage of Jewish people. And again, no doubt from, from all the various tribes coming in and accepting the Lord and accepting the Messiah and worshiping him and following him. Back to Ezekiel chapter 37. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with the detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now, prior to the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity, idol worship was pretty rampant in Israel, very big in Israel. From the very beginning of the split, Jeroboam built two golden calves, and, and the people worshipped that as well as other gods, Baal and other idols. And there were some in, in Judah as well. But after the Babylonian captivity, there's very little, if any, uh, mentioned in the Bible of us going back, or historically, of Jews going back to idol worship, as far as little figurine or statue type of idol worship. Uh, you know, we still have selfish worship, worship ourselves, worship money, worship, you know, whatever, um, uh, in the selfish sense. But as far as the literal sense of worshiping a statue, we don't see that, just as Ezekiel prophesied. We're going to come back to the land, the two tribes, the people from the two tribes representing the two tribes are going to come back to the land of Israel, are going to be united as one, and they're not going to worship idols. And that took place. Verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. That's a powerful promise. David, my servant, the Messiah, Mashiach ben David, Messiah, son of David. And again, Yeshua comes along, and again, many Jewish people of all the different tribes came and followed him and worshipped him. Again, fulfillment of this prophecy. Thousands. Some estimate that 25% of the Jewish people were following him. The Jews themselves have said that he's turned our world upside down. They're turning our world upside down. We weren't talking about the Roman world. Herod wasn't, you know, so worried about it, or, or Caesar wasn't so worried about it. But the, the Jewish world was turned upside, 25%. Can you think of any nation in the world right now that has 25%? Well, maybe some, maybe, I don't know, maybe Italy, I don't know, maybe something. Like 25% of one religion? That's a high percentage. Well, I guess some Islam nations, so you've got 25% one. But a free thing, I don't know what. But still, whatever the case, it's a very high percentage. It's 25% that are truly worshiping. And even in those days, if it was outlawed and under persecution to have 25%, as it wasn't for the disciples, that's a huge number. 
thousands again, thousands, and they were worshiping Messiah, son of David, as prophesied. Now, of course, this chapter has its fullest fulfillment under the new heavens and the new earth where everyone will be worshiping the Lord God, uh, Messiah, uh, in fullness and in truth. But here he's prophesying, and they shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. We read that last week in quoting from Ezekiel chapter 36, chapter just before this, where he says, I will place a new heart in you and give you my spirit and you shall walk in my judgments, observe my statutes and do them. That God causes us to walk in his ways when we have his heart and his spirit. Now, if God is giving us a new heart, he's giving us new bloodlines. Right? That's where all the blood is, is in the heart. Right? You get a new heart, you get new blood. A whole blood transfusion taking place, a whole heart transfusion, transformation taking place, transplant taking place. God takes his heart and he places it into us. And it really doesn't matter who your parents were. It really doesn't matter who your grandparents were. It really doesn't matter how far back you can claim your genealogy. You do your tree and all kinds of things. But it's the new heart that counts. That's what God's looking for, a new heart. He's not looking for who our parents were or our grandparents were. It's not salvation through rape. You know, oh, I happen to be fortunate enough that my great-great-great-grandmother somewhere was a Syrian taken to Rome or taken to Babylon or taken to England and, and got raped by some Gentile and then I come along and I've got some Jewish blood in me somewhere or salvation through intermarriage with unbelievers or unequally yoked. That's what all those other things are teaching, basically. That if you happen to be fortunate enough that your ancestor happened to be a Jew that got transferred to some place, you know, if, we, if, our, if our Judaism is based on, on having some Jewishness in our bloodline, then that makes King David a Moabite. Right, because his was great-grandmother is a Moabite. And so he has Moabite blood. And so if a little bit of Jewish blood makes you Jewish, then a little bit of Moabite blood makes you Moabite. <laughs> and he's got Rahab in his inheritance as well. You don't need a pure bloodline. You don't even need a little bit of bloodline. What we need is the blood of Messiah covering us. It's the blood over the doorpost that sent the angel of death away in the 10th plague. It wasn't what tribe you were from. It wasn't a mezuzah on the door. It wasn't a Jewish star around your neck. It was the blood over the, of the lamb over the doorpost. And the same for our salvation. It's the blood of the lamb, the blood of the Messiah over our lives. To forgive our sins and to get a new heart and a new life, that's what matters. That's what counts. Now, it's helpful to be raised in a godly family. God bless you if you were raised in a godly family. God bless you if you, if you were raised with, with a godly inheritance. To know the Lord and generational, that's fabulous. How much more? But it's still not what saves us. It can be helpful. But what saves us is our personal decision to follow the Lord. To allow him to take out our old heart with whatever DNA and whatever blood is in there, which is all just carnal and satanic, and take it away and give us a totally new heart and put his spirit into us. 
him to breathe new life into us, his breath, his ruach into us, and to live new lives, and then he causes us to walk in his judgments, observe his ways, and to do them. Wonderful promise. And that applies to everyone down through the ages. It's not something that happened after Messiah died. It goes back again to Rahab and Ruth and all the way back to Adam and Eve. It goes all the way back. It's all always been the same. Anyone who surrenders their life to the Lord shall be saved. All who accept him shall be saved. All who fear the Lord shall be saved. That's what it's about. It's not all who have good lineage, all who have a good family tree, all who contract themselves to David or Judah or something like that. I had someone come up to me and say, what tribe are you from? I said, I don't know. He said, well, I'm from the tribe of Ephraim. I said, well, that's too bad. Because Ephraim's not mentioned in Revelation. Revelation gives a list of the 12 tribes, and it doesn't mention Ephraim. Ephraim gets kicked out <laughs> and replaced by Joseph. And I think Dan gets kicked out, too, and is listed with a Levi instead, because it's a way to shuffle the 12 and still get 12. But yeah, it's not what number you're from. It's by who is our God? Whose child are we? children of God. And that's open to all, all who will accept him. For God to love the world. Verse 25. They shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. So again, the ultimate fulfillment of this forever is in the new heavens and the new earth. And the Messiah will reign forever. David as king. Messiah, son of David. Verse 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Revelation talks about God being the sanctuary. Yeshua is the sanctuary. He is the tabernacle. He will be in our midst. He will be with us. He will never leave us. Heaven's throne will be moved down to this earth. The new Jerusalem will be moved down to this earth, and the new earth. And God will be there in our midst forevermore. Verse 27, My tabernacle shall also be with them. Indeed, I will be their God. They shall be my people. And the nations shall also know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst forevermore. Some people ask, well, then what about the Gentiles? So the prophecy here mentions the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Judah, the two sticks coming together and being one and coming back to the land. And David, uh, God's servant, obviously prophetic of the Messiah, will be their prince. Well, here it mentions the the nations. Nations, the word for nations is goyim. It's talking about the goyim, the Gentiles. So the Gentiles will come in as well. They don't have to marry some Jew or rape some Jew or have some Jewish children to have them come in to the, to the line. The Gentiles will come in when they see God sanctifying in us. That's what the world is waiting for. And that's what God did. That's exactly how he did it. He brought us back to the land, as he said. He made the two nations one. The Messiah came. Thousands of Jewish people accepted him. 
And then what did they do when these 3,000 accepted him, when the 5,000 accepted him, and, the world, and daily people were accepting him? They took the message to the world. They went to India, a person from Ethiopia, Paul went to, to the north, to the Roman Empire, and God started taking the message to the world. When he was sanctified in us, he took it to the nations. Now, it had always been going to the nations, but in a fast track way, he took it and multiplied it. We have the young little young girl, maiden girl, who was taken by the Assyrian cap, taken Assyrian by captives, and he just gets leprosy. Naaman gets leprosy, and she says, "Go down to Israel, go down to uh, Elisha, and and you'll be healed." And he goes and he goes and he immerses himself in the Jordan River. He comes up and he comes up a believer. So it's always been going to the nations. It's always been open to the nations to come in and join together as well. Rahab didn't have to go and check out her family tree or DNA in order to become part of the family. Ruth didn't have to do that. Come in by faith. Accept it by faith. It's always been by faith. The family of God. The door open to all. He's chosen us to choose others. That's what our calling is to be a light to the nations. And that's what God's wanting us to do here today. He's wanting us to be one. As he had Adam and Eve become one, as God is one, as he made the two nations one, he wants us to be one. He wants us to be one in Messiah. That unique oneness. Again, two still individuals. Doesn't mean we're all going to wear the same uniform. All have the same hair color. All part our hair on the same side. But then we become one in the Lord. One in faith, one in love, one in trust, one together, united together, as God is one, as Adam and Eve were one. He wants us to be one, united together, as one family of God. And when people see the oneness of God in us, sanctified in us, with new hearts, with God's Spirit in us, filled with His joy, filled with His love, sanctifying in us, causing us to walk in his judgments, walk in his statutes, and to do them, the nations around us, the people around us, will be drawn to that. They will know we are believers by our love for one another. That's what the world is looking to see. Love among ourselves. Love for them. To love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, with all our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And even our enemy. And they see that type of love lived out through us and united together in oneness together in doctrine and in truth and in righteousness and in holiness and caring for one another. God will bring the nations, he'll bring the others in as well. That's what God has called us for. And so the prophecy here tonight of this oneness that God has, this oneness that God wants, this oneness that God wants lived out in us and through us. That's what he's calling to happen again. It, it was a miracle in Ezekiel's day. It's a miracle when Ezra and Nehemiah came back. It's a miracle in the Maccabees. It was a miracle under Yeshua. It's been a miracle down through the ages that we've stuck together as a people, as one, not divided up as one. It's a miracle that we're here today. And so as we prepare to pray, God speaks to our hearts. In a moment, whatever area applies to you, if 
God's been speaking to you. And maybe you've been trusting in, in your heritage. Maybe you've been trusting in your parents or your grandparents and their faith. And you want to trust in the Lord for yourself. Maybe you've been trusting in something in the past and you want to trust the Lord today. Make him your Lord, your Messiah, today. In the moment when we pray, accept him. And accept his blood over your life. Two, if there's been some division in your life, maybe at one time you were one in, a, in your home and a division take, took place. Maybe you're separated from your spouse or maybe physically still together in the home, but there's a separation that's taken place. That oneness is no longer there. Or maybe between you and, and your siblings or your parents or your children or maybe some friend from the past and a division has taken place. God wants us to be one. there's been hurt, if there's been pain, if there's been separation, if there's been a break. And the moment when we pray, you can ask God to do all he can on your part. Now, it's still up to them. they still got to make a decision too. But all that we can on our part to manifest love, to bring about unity. Now, of course, if there was abuse, don't go get re-abused. I didn't call us to go be re-abused. You know, if someone abused you, well, hey, maybe they rot in prison forever or whatever. You don't have to go and, and become physically together with them. But may God still give us love for them and forgiveness towards them and security in our walk with the Lord. That we can be one, in heart at least, in mind at least, on our part, as much as possible within us. Do all that we can Ask forgiveness if necessary to remove the division that's taken place. So that oneness, that miracle of God, that God can make us one. And it's a miracle for us to be one. Thirdly, if there's some separation here in the congregation, I don't know of one right now, thank God, but maybe you do. Maybe you're hearing some gossip. Maybe you're hearing some backbiting. Maybe you're hearing some negativity. Maybe there's some satanic attempt to bring division. And right now, in a moment when we pray, ask God to break that division, and to bring about unity, that we can have oneness together in him, that we one in Messiah, united in him. Fourth, we want God to be sanctified in you, to cause you to walk in his judgments, walk in his statutes, walk in his ways, and to do them. So you can be a light to everybody around you, that you can be a light to the nations, to Jews and Gentiles, to everybody that we come in contact with, that they can see God in us and be drawn to him. Maybe God's impressing someone on your mind who needs to know the Lord. God wants to use you in reaching them. Then the moment when we pray, ask God to do that. It's a miracle. God, to touch their hearts, to go before you, touch your heart, and to sanctify you. Or maybe some other area, God speaking to your heart and mind. Maybe you've been getting caught up in various teachings and trying to find some bloodline heritage or something like that, or some of these other type of things we looked at. 
or replacement theology, and you want God to cleanse your mind of the false theology and to give you a straight view of his truth and of his word. And stop making simple chapters difficult. Making difficult chapters simple. <laughs> but stick with the word of God and let the word of God explain itself. Then a moment when we pray, ask God to sanctify our mind because he's the one who gives us wisdom. He's the one who gives us knowledge. He's the one who gives us discernment. And so if any of those areas apply to you or something else God's speaking to your heart and mind about, let's pray together and let God do his mighty work. <coughs> our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you, Lord, for our lives. We're thankful, Lord, for the heritage that you've given each one of us. We're thankful that the for the families you've birthed us each into. Because whatever circumstance, whatever situation has brought us to this day that we're here worshiping you. And we thank you for your sacrifice in our behalf. Thank you, Yeshua, being the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Thank you for coming as the seed of David. Thank you for coming from the lineage of Abraham. Thank you for coming as that promise. And thank you for sacrificing your son, yourself, in our behalf. And we want to claim you. We want to claim your heart in us. We want to claim your spirit in us. We want to claim your forgiveness and your removing of our carnal natures and removing all of our sinful blood and filling us with your lifeblood. Live in us and out of us. Make us one together as families, as friends, as a congregation together. Make us one, united in your truth, united in your word, united in you, loving one another, caring for one another. And fulfill your truth in us. And may we dwell with you in your sanctuary forever. And use us in bringing other people to you as well. In Yeshua's holy name, amen. <laughs>